If you will, to Acts chapter 12. Once again, we can remain standing for a shorter chapter. We've had some long ones. This one's not so bad. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first round and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Father, again we come to you asking that you do the work that only you can do through the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear, work in and through these words to pierce our hearts with the truth. Lord, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, 
for those who were here last week and for those who weren't, I kind of brought a conclusion to last week's sermon with the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, from Matthew 16. And we certainly saw that to be true in that that situation because there were great obstructions, at least from a human perspective, to the growth of the church. We saw there was deep-seated prejudice in the church. There was ignorance and misunderstanding to the appropriation of the gospel, who it was for, and even natural disasters that, again, would have appeared to be obstacles. But God, in His sovereignty, worked not only in spite of these things, but even through these things to build His church. It's what He does. And today we see that again in that more suffering, more persecution, and yet God works in and through these things to bring growth to His church. And in between these stories of persecution, or along with the stories of persecution, is sandwiched this personality, this Herod Agrippa. He was bent on destroying the church. And it's going to be interesting, I hope, for all of us today to see what happened in his life, how that's important for us, how pride goes before destruction. We see this happen here, and how we need to be on guard against pride in our own hearts. So let's look now at the text. In verse 1, we see Luke introduce us to Herod. This is Herod Agrippa saying that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We know those violent hands went on James, who lost his life, and Peter, who was certainly going to lose his life, uh, as well as others. We don't have a list beyond that. Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. And you remember Herod the Great was the king at the time of the birth of Jesus. And he was the one who ordered the death of all toddlers boys to and under, because he was trying to eradicate this king that had been prophesied about. This was his grandfather. On his mother's side, he was of Hasmonean descent, which meant he, was, he had some Jewish blood in him. And as a result, he tried to use this to gain the approval of the Jewish people that he ruled by adopting their practices. He knew the Jewish people, the people of Israel, hated his family, because after all, they were an occupying force. Nobody liked the Romans. They didn't belong there in the minds of Jews. But Agrippa was also a people pleaser. And he would do anything to gain the applause of the Israelites. One contemporary historian of Agrippa wrote, The king is guided by the queen, and the queen is guided by Gamaliel. You remember, he was the kind of mentor of Paul, a member of the Pharisees. This was who the queen listened to. And the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Jews, recorded that even when Agrippa went up to the temple during the festival of first fruits, he carried his own basket, something a king wouldn't have done. But he was really trying to put on a show before the Jewish people that he was one of them. Later, when he would read the law as the king would do, uh, when it came to uh, Deuteronomy 17, he would stand, which was again unlike previous Roman rulers as a sign of respect, and everyone praised him for that. And when he reached Deuteronomy seventeen fifteen, Thou mayest not put a foreigner over you which is not your brother. It's this, the Mishnah says his eyes flowed with tears because of his Jewish ancestry. But they called out to him, Our brother art thou, our brother art thou, our brother art thou. Even being more than a people pleaser though, Herod Agrippa was a narcissist. He thought so highly of himself that he was deluded about what reality really was. And as we'll see, he becomes a victim of himself, which often happens to narcissists. Now, I'm not a psychologist, and I don't want this to be a psychological 
lecture today, but I couldn't help but notice these elements when I looked at the text this week. So let me say a, first, a few things about this, because one of the things that I have noticed in my years in ministry is that the church is not uh, free from this. Pride infects even believers. It's a battle that we all fight with. I mean, if we're honest, we all fight against pride. And pride is a tricky thing because the minute that you say you don't have any, there you go. <laughs> or if you say, I'm humble, yeah, you're not. So pride is a really tricky thing. But when it comes to this idea of narcissism, which is kind of pride on steroids, one layman's term or, or layman's uh, description, which I prefer, uh, comes from a, 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 this, this writing, narcissistic personalities care only for themselves, their needs, and their priorities. While you and I appreciate attention, the narcissist craves it and manipulates people in situations to get it. While you and I work hard to be successful, the narcissistic personality connives to succeed and may cheat, lie, embellish the truth, or scheme to get ahead, uncaring of how others are affected." We need to be on guard against pride. This is where pride takes us. Another description I found helpful is narcissistic abuse progresses through three stages, idealize, devalue, and discard. And if you've lived long enough, you may have even been affected by someone who has lived this way. And I think we can see this clearly in Luke's portrayal of Agrippa. This is exactly what he does. Agrippa, like other narcissists, was a charmer. He was... He was charismatic. He wooed people. He was trying to keep up this Jewish facade, which, by the way, when he went back to Rome, which was really his home, he was sent there when he was four uh, for his own protection by his mom. So he grew up there. That was really his home. When he would go back there, this whole Jewish facade just went away. He lived like a heathen when he was in Rome. But when he was done with people, he would literally devalue and discard them. And that's what happened with James and Peter. It's what happened with his own soldiers. I mean, trust me, he was not leading with integrity when he had James killed and he attempted to kill Peter. He was doing this out of self-interest. The church, as I said, has also been affected by this uh, throughout our history. And so we have to be on guard against pride. And in God's sovereignty, in the last couple weeks, Mike Osborne, who most of you know, who's preached here many times, posted some notes from his sermon. I haven't heard the sermon yet, I just saw the notes, and it connected so well uh, with what we're looking at today. And so I just want to mention a couple of the points that he wrote. And these serve as a warning to us, in a sense, kind of a gut check. Are these, any of these things true about ourselves? Number one, self-reliance rather than dependence on God. Now, in the West, we're encouraged to be self-reliant. You know, we're the ones that pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're the ones that get it done. But as a Christian, we're never completely self-reliant. While in a work context or a school context, it may be noble to work hard, to give it all you have. It's a good thing to work hard. But we're always dependent on God. And the believer recognizes this. And the believer will humble himself or herself when they have needs and they will allow others to serve them. But the narcissist doesn't do this. The love of attention, a lack of empathy for other people, this is huge. A habit of boasting about your knowledge, abilities, and achievements. Here's another one that you should look out for. A tendency to chafe and make excuses when rebuked, admonished, or corrected. We all kind of do that a little bit. But how do you respond to correction? Are you able to receive it? Are you teachable? 
an unwillingness to submit to godly leadership, prejudice in all its forms, insistence on being in control, inflexibility, failing to give credit where credit is due and taking credit for other things people have done, and unwillingness to admit your own mistakes. I mean, more could be said about pride than just that. That's a sermon in in a sermon, so we won't spend any more time on that. But let's use these as a sense, uh, uh, in a sense, a gut check that we are fighting the battle against pride. Let me say one more warning before moving on, and that is pride deceives you as it destroys you. Pride deceives you as it destroys you. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we see how it deceived King Agrippa. There are a number of contemporary examples as well, so let's not be dismissive in our battle against pride. Luke tells us Agrippa was violent against more than Peter and James, but he was specifically being strategic in going after Peter and James. After all, both of these men were leaders in the church. Both of these men had been part of the 12 disciples of Christ, and both of these men were part of that inner three circle of Peter, James, and John who were with Christ on special occasions. And Agrippa was attempting strategically to strike a vital blow at the church. He did this to please the Jews. And so he had James beheaded. And when he saw, verse 3 says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he went after Peter as well. Notice the fuel of pride. This is what it does. It fuels evil intentions to go even further because he was willing to do even greater harm simply because it pleased the Jews. He wasn't leading a nation or ruling a territory. He was building a kingdom of self. So Peter was imprisoned only because it was the festival of unleavened bread. There was a bit of a delay, and the Passover would follow that. But his future was certain. He understood he was headed for the same end that James was. And so verse 4 tells us, just to be sure, Herod orders four squads of soldiers to guard him. Almost certainly he had heard a story of Peter's previous prison escape, and he was going to make sure that this wasn't going to happen again. And as soon as Passover was completed, he planned to bring him out to the people. Agrippa's plans were to destroy the church. He wanted to appease the Jews, and he saw this as a sure way to gain their affection. But in working to that end, he failed to realize who he was up against, whose church it was. And the people of God, they knew exactly what to do. What did they do? Did they protest? Did they take up arms against the king? Did they run away? No, they took the approach that afforded them the most power against this enemy, and they prayed. Notice verse 5 says they prayed earnestly. Prayer was for them a priority. It wasn't a last-ditch effort. They put effort and they gave it time. Some have said, show me a person's checkbook and I'll show you their priorities. Today, you might say, show me a person's quicken files and I'll show you their priorities. But it's true. You know, you look at where you spend money and that certainly indicates where your priorities are. But I think the same could be said for Christians about our prayer life. Our prayer life does indicate what we consider a priority. How do we pray? How much time do we pray? For what do we pray? All of those things can be used as a as a check to look at in our own lives. Is prayer something we only run to in times of trouble? Or do we come to God recognizing that He calls us to come and bring all things before Him? There is no small link between the prayers, the earnest prayers of the early church and what we're going to see happen now for Peter. 
So Peter is sitting in prison. His judgment was coming the very next day. Verse 6 says, Herod's about to bring him out. And notice Peter's demeanor. Was it what I would be feeling in a time like this? (laughs) Fear and anxiety? No, he was sleeping like a baby. (laughs) He was sleeping so hard that he had to be poked in the side to be woken up. It took some effort by the angel, verse 7 says, to wake him up. Later, Peter would write in 1 Peter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter did not write that in a vacuum, but from a deep experience of what would truly cause anxiety for any of us. Peter's trust was in the Lord. Notice also how Peter was imprisoned. He was between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains. There were two guards at the door of the cell. There were another two guards at the gate to the cells. Notice the trend there. It's overkill. Agrippa's taking no chances with this which makes the story all the more amazing. And so upon waking Peter, the angel, he's in, you know, he's in a haze. He doesn't realize this is really happening. He thinks maybe it's a vision. And so the angel has to give him commands that sound almost like a child. You know, get up, get dressed, put your sandals on, wrap your cloak around you. You noticed that when we read through it. Uh, follow me, come out. The chains just fall off. Verse 7 says, The guards didn't wake up. A bright light had shone in. The doors open on their own accord. The Greek word literally is the same word that we get automatic from. They opened automatically. And then Peter's standing in the street alone. The angel's gone, verse 10 says. And Peter says to himself, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Pharaoh and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This tells us a couple things. One, because Peter said this to himself, most scholars believe Peter was at least one of the sources for Luke's history, that Peter had to give this information firsthand to Luke. It's not impossible that it couldn't have transferred between people, but most likely he was one of the sources, uh, which is interesting. But he indicates that he also knew something worse was was awaiting him beyond the prison cell. Peter knew that he was going to die. And what's interesting as well is he uses a phrase nearly, or it's, it's, it's identical except for one word, from the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, where Moses talks about being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. God rescued me from the hand of Pharaoh. Here, Peter says word for word, the Lord rescued me from the hand of Herod. And this time there was no command to go and return to preaching like the last time he was delivered from prison. So Peter knew he had to leave town. But before he goes, he wants to let the church know, and so he knows where to find them. And, you know, this this is the more comedic relief of this interaction with Rhoda. Uh, Let me just say one thing before that, and that is he knows where to find them. It's Mary's house. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. And we see her and her home appear in different sections in the New Testament, so we know only a little bit about her. Um, Let me just say that I think many of us, when we look at the history of the church, when we look at the history of the early church in particular, um, most of us want the exciting roles. You know, we want to make an impact like Peter or like Paul, uh, even like Barnabas. But Mary had a role to play. She opened up her home. A lot of scholars think that it was her home that the upper room was in for the Last Supper. 
She was just using the resources and the gifts that God had given her. She used them faithfully, and God used it in his story to carry out his plan of redemption. Mary has a servant girl that is in charge of the gate. Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door. Maybe she said, who's there? Whatever Peter's response was. She recognizes his voice, verse 14 tells us. And she's so excited that she forgets to open the door, and she runs back in to tell everybody. Um, you know, it's easy to picture this scene. It's, it's almost like a sitcom. You can imagine Rhoda's joy and just the disorientation by the surprise of it all. You can imagine the church body disregarding her because it really is unbelievable that Peter, knowing that he was in prison the way that he was, would be free. Even though, ironically, what were they doing? They were praying for his release, but they didn't believe it. You can imagine Peter, I wonder if he was not kind of looking over his shoulder, thinking, you know, open the door, open the door, open the door, as he stands there at the gate. And finally, they realize this is happening, and they open the door, and he comes in, and after quieting them down, he tells them everything that happened. And additionally, after verse 17, he asks them to tell James. Now, this is not James the apostle who had just been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, and we're going to see him emerge as one of the leaders in the early church in the coming chapters. But I think it's also interesting to remember back to John chapter 7, where it's recorded that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. So God has done a work even in Jesus' brothers, in James, who is now a believer. And then Peter leaves town. We don't know where he goes. As a result of his escape, though, we see Herod kick into gear and do what narcissists do. He's not interested in the truth. He just wants somebody to blame. This does not look good on him at all. This isn't fitting his plan. He needs someone to blame, and he goes after the guards. And, of course, the guards felt the blame. There was no small commotion, the text tells us. You can imagine what they were going through. They understood under Roman law that a guard who lost a prisoner received the penalty that the prisoner was due. And that's exactly what happened. And the prisoners were killed. And he, King Agrippa, leaves Judea after killing them and goes off to Caesarea. Much like stories of old, this one has a clear villain. At this point in the chapter, as we work our way through, now we're, you know, we really feel this desire to see Agrippa go down. We want to see him reach his rightful demise. And Luke introduces us to the people of Tyre and Sidon. There was some disagreement over food, probably trade routes, verse 20. Um, But these people understood something about Agrippa, and they played him like a fiddle. They understood that if we puff him up with words of praise, he'll do whatever we want. And this is true with narcissists. Agrippa thought all the power was his, but he was deluded in his own pride. They worked through their connections through this servant of the king, Blastus, to get a word in. And they came out and they filled the air with the praises of him saying, the voice of a god and not of a man. And it went straight to his head, or should we say... His heart. You have to imagine they were in a Colosseum in Caesarea. And for anyone who's been to Israel, you know that this has all been excavated. And the, the Colosseum sits there. It's been kind of redone. They have concerts in there now to this day. But it's the original side of it. And it faces the sea. So it faces west. And King Agrippa, Josephus fills in some of the details for this, had a robe that was made literally of woven silver. So he comes out in the first hours of the morning and the sun rising in the east hits this robe and gets off this glimmer. I mean, he was in his element. 
he felt like a god, and it went all straight to his head. And what does it say? God struck Agrippa dead. Now, we won't see every prideful leader come to this end. Some of you, no doubt, have been victims of narcissistic abuse. Maybe no one's ever found out about it. But while God is slow to anger, his judgment will not hold forever. We read it this morning. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. But you and I have to trust him to that end. We are to speak out about injustice. And when we see these kind of abuses, particularly in the church, this kind of power, this kind of pride, there's no place for it in biblical Christianity. And we have to root it out. It doesn't belong in the church. It doesn't belong in our families and our homes. Pride is the enemy. It is the root, Luther said, of all of our sin. We have to fight it. Know that first and foremost, the battle against pride begins in our own hearts. I've said it all earlier. None of us is immune to this. We all fight it. The minute we think we're not fighting it, there we are. We're full of pride. The chapter ends, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. It wasn't the strategies, the one, two, three step programs, the conferences, the books, the agendas of the apostles that grew the church. It was the word of God. God reveals himself to us in and through his word. And that's why we put such an emphasis on this at Christ the King. And the message, the overarching message of the word is the gospel of Jesus. It is the good news that God saves sinners. The hope that in Jesus Christ alone, by faith in Him, we can be made right before God. Our status before coming to faith was spiritual death. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And some remember this quite well. There are others who may be here who have never trusted in Christ. So think back to Peter's own experience that we looked at in this chapter. The gospel comes as a message. It is good news, just as the angel appeared to lead Peter to freedom. The angel came with some good news. You're free. The gospel comes as a shining light, just as the bright light appeared in the dark prison. The gospel wakes us to life, just as the angel poked Peter in the side and woke him up. The gospel breaks the chains of sin that bind us, taking off the things that keep us crippled and enslaved. And the gospel opens the door and leads us to freedom to rise, go forward, and follow Christ. If you have never confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Savior and Lord, then today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. For those who are believers, thank God that you have gained an interest in the Savior's blood. That we who caused His pain on the cross receive the benefits for which He died. How can it be? (laughs) Because of his amazing, gracious, unchangeable, never-ending, unquenchable love for us. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your love for us, that you saved us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. I pray if there is anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you and trust you, that you would draw them to yourself and save them. I pray for those of us who are believers, Lord, that you would continue that sanctifying work in our lives, that our 
faith would, would grow and increase, that we would desire to rise, go forward, and follow you wherever you would lead. And that you would use us, Lord, use us as individuals, but use us also as a body, as Christ the King, to be a light and a hope to the nations as we demonstrate what Christ has done in and through us, through our good works, living those things out, testifying to who Christ is, witnessing to what he has said and what he has accomplished, and calling others to saving faith. Would you do that, Lord, in and through us? For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.